0: Good to see all of you here this morning. Glad you're here. The Lord is glad you're here. You would grab your Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 3. We continue to work our way through the epistle of 1 John. The theme being, of course, the blessed assurance that we have in Christ Jesus from our God by the Spirit And we have seen that this assurance that we have is rooted in our fellowship with God, our communion with Him, which is the theme that comes up again and again as you go through this epistle. John's style of writing is a typical Jewish style. It's kind of like, you know, if you're standing by a pond or lake, and you have like a handful of pebbles, and you're just like tossing them in, you know, just one there, one there, one there, and and when those pebbles go in, they, they cause ripples. Well, eventually those ripples, they come out and they oh, start overlapping. That's kind of what John is doing. He's just throwing a pebble here and a pebble there and a pebble there. And, and there's ripples that, that take place. And, and that ripple effect, they start overlapping. These subjects do, which I think we will see especially in our text this morning, which is verses 4 through 10 of First John chapter 3. Here now, the word of the true and living God beginning in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let us pray. Before us, Father, lay two very different roads, two very different ways with very different destinies and trajectories. We pray that we would see clearly these two ways and recognize that you desire for us to be on the path of Christ that leads to life. Help us to, to walk in that way, Father, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Why did Jesus come to this world? John Piper has written a book that has 50 reasons pulled from the Bible, 50 reasons why Jesus came into this world. Jesus' life was the purpose-driven life. Uh, to cite another book uh, written several years ago that sold a bajillion copies, The Purpose-Driven Life really is focused on, ought to be focused on, the life of Christ, that He lived a purpose-driven life, and that is out of His purpose-driven life That our life is lived. Here we have at least two reasons as to why Jesus came into this world. They are seen in verse 5 and also in verse 8. Verse 5 says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. There's purpose number one. Take away sin. Your sin in mind, because, as the rest of the verse goes on, in him there is no sin. He didn't take away his own sin. He has no sin to take away. It is This is a clear, definite affirmation of the sinlessness of Christ. 100% totally, perfectly sinless. We're the ones with sin that needs to be taken away. And that is why he appeared, why he came into this world. But then also verse 6, very clear. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy... The works of the devil, purpose number two as to why Jesus came into the world. And it's very interesting the way that this is written. To destroy, the word that John uses here, to destroy, has to do with uh, loosing. And the, the imagery here is that the devil had bound us up in chains. All of humanity bound in these chains of sin and transgression and iniquity. And Jesus came to unloose those chains so that we might have freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from iniquity, freedom from transgression, all sin gone away. That's why Jesus came. These are the two great purposes as to why Jesus came into this world. Let's dig a bit deeper here. And first, we got to talk about sin. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sin. And I appreciate the English Standard Version here because they are capturing the force of what John is saying here. It is the ongoing, the progressive, present nature of sin versus not sin or sin versus righteousness that John is accentuating here. These are the only two paths there are. There's no third way, no third kingdom. If you are under the kingdom of Christ, you are one who aims to practice law, uh, righteousness. If you are under the kingdom of the devil, you are by default, under that kingdom, and you are practicing sin. And the English standard has worked to draw that out from the original language in its translation, which I appreciate. The practice, the practice. Two distinct careers are in view here. A career of righteousness versus a career of sin. That's the force here. Uh, whoever makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. This is Lawlessness is to throw out the law. God has given His law, and uh, people who abide under the power of the evil one, they look at the law and they say, meh, don't want it. And they throw it out and they seek to be a law unto themselves. It is outlawism that is in view here. John goes on, he says, sin is lawlessness. Now, that's the very nature, the fundamental character of sin is to disregard the law of God, to throw it out and to seek to be a law unto yourself. I'll do things my way. And so John, again, emphasizing here the one doing sin, the one practicing sin is also practicing lawlessness. Well, but Jesus, verse 5, again, the purpose here, he came, he appeared in order to take away sin. Now, we know that the removal of our sin, all of that was done at the cross. Jesus on the cross takes away our sin as he sheds his blood. It is the precious blood of Jesus that removes all that sin. It's not accentuated here per se. I mean, it's elsewhere, certainly in John. But in this particular verse, what is in view here is, the, what's emphasized is the complete taking away, the complete removal of it. All that sin taken away in Jesus. And then again, that emphasis on his own sinlessness, the present reality of his sinlessness. He is, John writing decades after the fact after the historical reality of the incarnation and the sinless life of Christ and his death on the cross and his burial and resurrection and subsequent ascension, decades after all of that, John is still emphasizing, yeah, and he still is sinless. We could talk about it now, 2,000 years later. He is still sinless, brothers and sisters. That's what makes him a perfect Savior. Why, he's the only one who could take away our sin. Because he is sinless now, right now time does not permit us to engage the discussion of, well, why was he sinless? Let me just emphasize here a couple of things. Number one, essential to deity is sinlessness. Uh, Divine impeccability is the big way of saying it, uh, uh, historically, classically, that God, there's no sin in God, and, and Christ is the Son of God, God the Son, even he in himself is God, and so he himself is impeccable, no sin whatsoever. And indeed, as God, he is uh, unable to sin. But he also takes on humanity. And as I've said before, and we don't have time to develop it fully, but we often work under the assumption that what it means to be human is to sin. Jesus shows us that actually there's coming a day when we ourselves also will be unable to sin, and indeed we won't want to sin. And, And certainly that ought to be worked into the discussion of, the sinlessness of Christ once he assumed humanity. Otherwise, I, I think we're left with the, the absurd, even maybe heretical idea that even right now at the right hand of, Christ, of, the, of the Father, the Son who has retained his humanity still apparently has the ability to sin? No, no, I don't, I don't think so. Much more certainly can be said about that, but we press forward into verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And again, I appreciate the force the English Standard Version is communicating this with. Uh, Whoso abideth in him is what the old King James says. That's pretty good, too. And we'll have to have a discussion there uh, in just a moment. But what's emphasized, first of all, is the ongoing nature of our abiding or our remaining in him. Uh, And we, we do. That's the nature of our communion. Our fellowship with God is... We continue to abide in him, and he in us as well. As a result of our continually abiding in him, John says that that the one who continues to abide does not keep on sinning. You you don't keep on sinning if you abide in him. Again, the old King James says, sinneth not. And the force of that, we don't don't talk that way anymore. It's perfectly good English, King's English back in 1611 when that was published. But that if ending, you know, the abideth and the sineth and all that, we don't talk that way. The reason they translated it that way was because it communicated clearly to the original audience in 1611. That f ending, when you see that, indicates a present tense thing. And that's what's, in, that's what's uh, so clear here in my English standard is the, the idea of keeps on sinning, the ongoing nature of this, the habitual practice of sin. That's what's in view here. Uh, and so John says, yeah, you, you do not keep on sinning as, a, as making it a career or a habit if you abide in him. No, instead, you're working to put to death sin. Now, does John have in mind here the occasional sin? I don't think so. And he's already dealt with that back in chapter 2, verse 1, that he says, there, uh, my little children, I, I write unto you so that you may not sin. It's absolutely clear. We we need to be putting away sin and putting to death, mortifying sin in our lives so that we might practice righteousness as we abide in Him. But John recognizes the reality that if anyone does sin, and we do, John himself recognizes that he himself is a sinner. <coughs> Back in chapter 1, we talked about uh, verse 7 which talks about the ongoing walking in the light can't be a sinless walk because we wouldn't need the continual cleansing of the blood we talked about verse 8 that if anyone says he has no sin he deceives himself truth is not in him uh if we say we have not sinned we deceive ourselves truth is not in us john includes himself there yes we we do there are those occasional sins and and we ought to feel guilty about those things our conscience bearing witness ah shouldn't have done that i know that's wrong god I confess this. Help me to overcome this by your Spirit. Help me to put this to death. And and over time, the longer we walk with God, I do believe that those desires to sin, uh, they they decrease in certain areas, though there there will still be the ongoing struggle we have against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We don't achieve perfection this side of eternity. But there's coming a day, and we've talked about when he appears. We talked about that last week, that all that will be done away with. But in the meantime, We had that ongoing battle, that ongoing struggle against sin. And this makes sense in the larger context here because, uh, again, the the nature of Christ, he is sinless perfection, as the end of verse 5 says. And if the purpose of his coming was to take away sin, then it just seems reasonable that for us who abide in him, we'd want to sin less and be putting away sin and cease the habitual practice, even though from time to time, we do, we are tempted, and we give into the temptation, and we sin, perhaps far more likely than we like to admit, but that's the reality that we live in, and John is addressing that here. He says, no one who keeps on sin, no one who engages in that continual habitual practice of sin keeps, uh, has either seen him or known him, and, and both of these verbs seem to communicate, number one, the enjoyment that we have, the delight that we have in abiding in God and, and fellowshipping and, and communing with Him, but also the other aspect here seems to be in, in view is the recognition that God is involved in our lives, uh, that, that knowing that He's involved in our lives and knowing Him and, and seeing how uh, more and more we are shaped and conformed to the image of Christ. If you're making a habitual practice, you keep on sinning and you keep living a life of sin well, then you're living a life that is in disregard. You are disregarding God's law. You don't want to do things His way. You want to do things your way. No, we are people who aim to make God's will central to our life. We want to do things His way and acknowledge Him in all things. Uh, But again, there are those times when when we do slip, we do trip, we fall, we sin. And it's, again, the assurance is you get up. You confess that to the Lord, and His, the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all of our sins. It keeps on cleansing. It doesn't stop cleansing. Little children, verse 7, let no one deceive you. This shows us it's a battle for the mind. The lie will come and try to persuade us in our minds to turn away from God. But That's why we need the truth to speak a better word to our minds, uh, and we stay our minds and our thoughts on God. He says, let no one deceive you. And apparently there were those deceivers. We've talked about them. John styles them as antichrists. They wanted to cause these Christians to veer off the good and godly path that they are on. And John says, no, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Uh, In other words, as you make it your desire to do what God would have you to do, to do that righteousness, to practice righteousness, to make it your career, your habitual lifestyle to practice righteousness. Well, if that is your desire, and it is, O Christian, well, God is the one who is making us righteous. Uh, And again, it's not because of any righteousness in and of ourselves. He makes us righteous in Christ. He credits to us the righteousness of Christ. And indeed, we are righteous as He is righteous. That's exactly right. He is righteous, and then he credits God credits to us the righteousness of Christ. And as a result of our righteous standing with God, now we aim to live a life that is pleasing to God in all things, that righteous standing. I know we don't always feel that way, do we? Especially when our conscience is nagging at us, and, and we uh, remember the way that we once lived. And again, that's why John is writing to these Christians, writing even for us today, that you have the blessed assurance, O oh, Christian, that as you make it your dead-level aim to walk with God and to abide in Him and to live in Christ and to live for Christ. The blood of Jesus continually cleanses us. We are righteous before God because of Christ and His righteousness. And we can silence those voices that threaten us, threaten our assurance, threaten our walk, all those things. John has the typical practice of presenting both sides of the coin here. Uh, on the one side the practice of righteousness on the other side the practice of sin so verse 8 whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil again what's in view here is that lifestyle that career that life of sin the habit of sin the ongoing continuous action in view here he says whoever makes it makes a practice of sinning is of the devil Jesus made a similar statement in the gospel of John and as I've said before the epistle of John seems to be a brief commentary, as it were, uh, an appendix, perhaps, to the gospel that John wrote, offering uh, clarification and uh, also providing what the church needed, as apparently there were some of these early proto-Gnostic heretics who were coming on the scene, taking what John had written and distorting it into ways that were ungodly and wrong. And So John writes, 1 John, but there are clear echoes which we would expect, since John wrote the gospel and this epistle. And one of those is here in John chapter 8 and verse 44. And again, these are the words of Jesus as he speaks to the religious opponents of his day. John eight forty-four, he says, You are of your father the devil. There it is. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. Notice the will here. The inclusion of the will that the 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 mind choosing to do the desires of the evil one. And so here is John as we come back to 1 John 3, 8, and that's a clear echo. Of the devil is that same kind of language. We do need to be careful here because John is careful. Whereas on the one hand, John will talk about children of God as being begotten of God. He does not use the same kind of language to talk about the children of the devil. The devil, as one theologian has said, the devil made no one, he begot no one, he created no one. But whoever imitates the devil is, as it were, a child of the devil through imitating, though uh, not through being born of him. There's that difference and distinction, and John is careful to make this. No one is begotten of the devil, but through imitation and by practicing sin, you are, as it were, a child of the devil. And and here John inserts, uh, pulls the veil back a little bit, You know, we get glimpses every now and again of uh, kind of the the origins of the fallen angels, the devil included. And tantalizingly brief, he says, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And from the beginning here probably points to when the devil in rebellion, because of pride, led uh, a number of other angels with him in rebellion against God and they were cast out of heaven. And, And that, again, just tantalizingly brief. He's the original sinner, the first sinner, and he is all about causing other people to sin. And uh, he continues to sin himself. And so, the rest of verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, to unloose those chains. And it is by removing our sins that we are loosed from our chains of sin, our bondage to sin, and now we are free to engage in the righteous practice of the law of God and to do the things that God would have us to do. We are free from not just sin itself and the bondage that sin brings, but also the penalty and the punishment that sin brings with it. We don't have to fear eternity away from God, because right now we abide in Him, we are practicing righteousness, we are not. We don't keep on sinning, we're, we're, we're doing our best to sin less and to sanctify, we're being sanctified by God, made holy more and more. All of that is, again, what John has in mind here. Now verse 9 and this is where the plot thickens a little bit. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. There it is, born of God. And, and we've we've come across this uh, phrase already back in 2 verse 29. The one practicing righteousness has been born of God. And it's the same phrase that John used there that he uses here. And it points to the fact that uh, we were born of God and we stand begotten of God. We are children of God. We continue to be children of God because of uh, that uh, initial practice birthing from God. Uh, could be, and this uh, we don't have time to make this connection too strongly, but remember in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and they have a discussion, about, and, and Jesus tells him, you got to be born again, born from above, and Nicodemus is like, well, how can a man uh, enter into his mother a second time? And Jesus is like, you got to be born of water and spirit, and that seems to be a connection to baptism. And so here, John may have in view here, and I think it's fairly safe to say the connection is strong, to our baptism. That that is where we are birthed of God, as it were. That spiritual action, that spiritual activity takes place there, where we are born of God, and now in light of that, we stand begotten of God as children of God. Well, John says, look, you Christians, you're born of God, and you've all undergone this new birth. Well, you you don't make a practice of sin. That's, again, what we've been talking about. Why is that? For, verse 9, God's seed abides in you. God's seed has taken up residence, and it dwells in you, in your heart, in your mind. And uh, there's some background here that is uh, also important to understand everything John is saying here. You know, we've talked about these heretics these false teachers that were present when John is writing this and there were those who were saying that they had this ethereal experience and there were even some who were saying that they had the divine seed the divine spark the divine seed in them and you're so lucky to have me because I have that divine seed you just come to me and you know for a nominal fee and all that right and here is John saying no 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 god's seed is in every christian You've all been born of God. You all have that spiritual DNA, that divine DNA, as it were, in you. It abides in you. It remains in you. Um, so what is it? Is it the Word? could be the Word. I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, absolutely. God's Word. You know, we think about the parables that Jesus told. He told the one about the sower who went out and he was sowing seed, and the, the seed is the Word of God. I don't have a problem with that. Could also be, I think about what Peter writes about how uh the, the divine nature, we, we currently share in that, and there's more of that to come. And I think about that because, you know, the, you have the Holy Spirit who comes and dwells within us. Uh, God shares a bit of himself with us in the here, and the now. Uh, I think it could be that. But here's the thing. God's seed abides in you. What higher motivation do you need to cease from sin and to be done with it and to put it to rest? God, his seed, dwells in you. And now notice uh, it says, Uh, For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Cannot. It's very strong. And I believe John is presenting here the ideal that every Christian ought to be aiming for. That's the ideal. Here's, Here's the target. Now go get it. Do we fall short? Yes. That's why we need the blood of Christ, and we need the continual cleansing that that blood brings. But I do think it ought to be our aim to... Again, be be done with sin. To to cease from sin is the language that Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 4. Just, uh, we aspire for that inability to sin. Part of it is, we ought to recognize that whereas sin once tasted good, it doesn't taste that way any longer. Let me give just a brief illustration here of what we're talking about. I have a couple of items here. One is uh, orange soda. Ooh, orange soda. Any orange soda fans here? Yeah, okay, all right. What about a Starbucks mocha frappuccino, huh? Mm, 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 right? Well, here's the thing. I mean, In and of itself, the the mochaccino, pretty good, right? Yeah, it's pretty good, pretty good. Wish you could have some. (laughs) Oh, boy. Always always dangerous. Ah, okay, good. Orange soda. Yeah, not bad, not bad. But uh, what we tend to do, as we take the good gifts of God, and we we distort them, right, and and we end up with orange mocha frappuccino, right. And so, you know, there was a time when uh, no, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> uh, you thought, you thought. Yeah. There was a time when, when that orange mocha frappuccino, man, mm that, that tastes good. And I, whatever your particular sin was, that was it. And you just guzzled it down. But now you've been born of God. You've been changed, new nature, new birth, all of that. God's seed now remains in you, and now it ought to be, mm, I, used, I used to drink this? What the matter with me? You have new design, new taste buds, as it were, right? And, and this, it doesn't taste right. And in fact, I have God's Word telling me, yeah, don't drink that. That's no good, right? This is what John is saying here. You cannot keep on sinning. Now, there may be times where, again, that flesh just crops up, and I just want to take a sip. And you do. And that's when it ought to be, ah, man, not again. Matter with me? I know better, right? Cannot keep on seeing. That's the ideal. To be done with drinking. I don't want orange mocha frappuccino anymore. I recognize it's it's no good, right? And to be done with it. Because he has been born of God. We have been begotten. We stand begotten. We are children of God. And children of God don't drink this. We don't do that anymore. Uh, We desire the good gifts that God gives us in the proper way that they're to be used as it were. Now, by this, verse 10, uh, this is the landing point here for today. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, it's that last phrase, loving your brother, that John is going to develop into verses 11 and following. He's going to bring in some Old Testament, Cain and Abel stuff, and, and, and we'll, we'll deal with that uh, next time. But in the meantime, here's John kind of bringing together, uh, summarizing, as it were, a little bit, uh, by this, by, by what he's just written or by what follows. Yes, I think both could be in view here, but it's evident who are the children of God. Um, there are clear markers, clear defining characteristics of a christian Uh, we can identify a christian by the way they walk by the things that they love and the things that they uh, are to be opposed to and all these things and who are the children of the devil again clear identifying markers uh, definite characteristics of those who are not children of god but are children of devil of, of the devil who are under his influence, and who are imitating him by loving the things that the evil one loves. Uh, And so John here, again, whoever does not practice righteousness, the one not doing righteousness. And and there's effort involved in this, just as there's effort in practicing righteousness. You know, just because you're a child of God doesn't mean you just get to sit there and ho-hum your way to heaven. There's There's a practice, there's a lifestyle that goes along with being a child of God. Now, we are to put into practice, and we're going to be active about it. But here is the active opposite, as it were, of that practice. Those who do not practice righteousness. Again, all of this is career stuff. It's lifestyle, habitual practice stuff. That's what John is identifying here. Um, You're faced with the, 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 the law of God, the word of God. What's your response to it? The clear revelation of God. If it is, no, I don't want that, I'm going to do things my way, and I'm going to continue to do things my way, that tells us something. But if you look at the clear revelation of God and you say, you know, I'm still struggling, I still battle against the world of flesh and devil, but I love this because I love God and I, I want to do what God would have me to do, that tells us something as well. Again, it is, all of this is rooted in the purpose-driven life of Christ. He came to live a sinless life, came to die on the cross for each one of us. He came to undo and destroy the works of the devil, and he has. And he continues to do that as people, men and women, as they obey the gospel of Christ. They come to him. They find him a perfect, willing Savior. And it is out of the purpose-driven life of Christ that we find our purpose for living. To cease from sin, to practice righteousness, and all of this motivated and empowered by the Holy Spirit living within us, God's seed abiding in us. We no longer want the things that we used to want. Now we want all of the good, godly things that God has for us. Let's commit this to prayer. Lord God, we we need your help. You have put before us clearly our Lord, his life. We pray, Father, that because you in Christ have taken away all of our sin, That we would aim to be done with sin. That we recognize we'll continue to struggle with it. And that with all the power that you supply, we would practice righteousness. Recognizing we have been declared righteous because he is righteous. We're so grateful for Jesus. For who he is and what he's done in our lives. pray all of this through the glorious name of Jesus. Amen.